0: Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.
1: I feel like poetry is the language that sits really close to feelings that defy language.
2: Hello and welcome to the Ezra Klein Show on the Vox Media Podcast Network. So through December, we're going to be doing a mix of new shows and a couple best ofs. Uh, And the best ofs are going to be either shows that I really, really love and want to be able to put back out into the world and into the feed, or they're going to be shows that I think have a particular resonance to what is happening right now. So this is a best of show. Please enjoy. This is a really beautiful episode. I had the great privilege of talking to Tracy K. Smith, who is a two-time Poet Laureate of the United States. She's the author of the memoir Ordinary Light, which was a finalist for the National Book Award. And she's the author of four books of poetry, including Life on Mars, which won the 2012 Pulitzer Prize and Wade in the Water more recently, which is just a beautiful, beautiful book about America. She's a professor of creative writing at Princeton, and she's just a very wise, humane, thoughtful person who speaks in a way that is itself calming and is itself deeply poetic. I say this a bit in the show, but I'm someone who's always struggled with poetry. I get turned off of it really easily. I get intimidated by it easily. I can't figure it out and I get frustrated. And It was reading what Smith has said and written about poetry and what our relationship to it is and what that struggle is about that has it at least helped me understand that maybe some of the things I was understanding as negative there, understanding as a lack in myself were not. So this is a one, I think, a great conversation about poetry, but also about America, about democracy, about love and what it means, uh, and about how to think and read and operate within language in ways that create more space for interpretation and contradiction. And she's this wonderful line, the feelings that language defies. So really, really enjoyed this one. And I hope you do, too. As always, my email is EzraKleinShow at Vox.com. Again, EzraKleinShow at Vox.com. Here is Tracy K. Smith. Tracy Smith, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. I'd like to start with something you said at a lecture at the Library of Congress where you said poetry is not the language we live in. It's not the language of our day-to-day errand running and obligation fulfilling, not the language with which we are asked to justify ourselves to the outside world, and it certainly isn't the language to which commercial value has been assigned. So what language is it?
1: I feel like poetry is the language that sits really close to feelings that defy language. Poetry kind of nudges some of our feelings of joy or confusion or desire toward feelings that we can recognize and describe. I kind of take solace in the fact that it's poems that we turn to in big moments of change, like the loss of someone or a marriage or the birth of of a child, because poems are resourceful in finding terms that remind us of what we live with, but don't always bring into speech.
2: I want to say here that I'm somebody who has had many periods in my life where I've said, I'm going to learn to read poetry better. And I've often become frustrated. and, And it was really reading your work here that helped me understand that maybe some of my frustrations were the point and not a failure. Like how they say in meditation, that when your mind wanders and you bring it back, that's the point of the meditation, not you failing at it. I love what you said there, that it's feelings that defy language, because I think something I always understood poetry to be was a kind of technical mastery of language. And when I read a lot of your work, it seems that you're saying that actually poetry is about the shortcomings of language, the ways in which it becomes sometimes difficult to read or signaling the ways in which language becomes insufficient for what we need to communicate.
1: Yeah, I mean, I feel like I want to say as a poet that there is a certain degree of mastery that is required to even get into the gray zone of feeling and, you know, what sits beyond the reach of language. I think poets work really hard to create the scaffolding or the formal mechanism for for these big questions to take shape within. But the fact of language, even the beauty of language, is secondary to the larger work of the poem, which, as you say, I think it's to enter into that the uncharted emotional territory, or to bring us with a greater sense of courage and resourcefulness toward the things that are just messy, overwhelming, rife with conflict or contradiction. And, you know, those are the things that, that, live on the surface of social life, right? politics and family and love is kind of tangled up with some of those things as well. And so poems tread in that direction and they do something to give us a sense of what we feel, what we're a part of and and what that means.
2: What's a poem for you that gets at that feelings that defy language. It, it, it feels like such a contradictory thing to say that something built of language can help express something that defies language. So what's, a, what's an example for people that might make that more legible?
1: Well, if we want to talk about contradiction, I guess two things come to mind. One is like all of the parables in the New Testament, you know, where Christ is trying to explain to the disciples that there is something that is realer than real that they can't see that they can feel if they allow themselves to, and that they can anticipate. Their life can be a, a kind of means of communicating with that other space, You know, the spirit realm or the afterlife or, or the realm of God. And so all of the language of those stories is metaphor, um, the bread of life, or even stories of somebody who is afflicted and somehow healed of that affliction. I like to imagine that that's one of the early instances of poetry, or one of the one of the examples of how symbolic, evocative, metaphor rich language can help us come close to imagining something that's essentially ineffable. But then there's another poem that um, by uh, Lucille Clifton that speaks to another kind of contradiction. Many of her poems are untitled, and so this one begins. Um, Won't you celebrate with me what I have made into a kind of life? She's talking about being born. She describes it as non-white and woman and having to live without a sense of a model for how to survive, how to manifest herself. The end of the poem arrives at, won't you celebrate with me that every day something has tried to kill me and has failed? There's this wonderful feeling of fear and rapture that that closure kind of incites for me. There's a space that we believe in, that we kind of have to operate within, and then there's something else. And the something else is important to take stock of.
2: You wrote or you said in that speech that I'm operating on the notion that poetry can save me from disappearing into the narrow version of myself I may be tempted to resort to when I feel lazy or defeated. What did you mean by that?
1: Well, I feel like poetry connects me to others. It's funny because often I think we, when we think in general terms about what poems do, we think of like, oh, navel gazing, <laughs> going inward and thinking about our deep feelings um, that isolate us from others. But I think um, poems allow me to wrestle with what it means to be a family member, what it means to be a citizen of, of a nation, and what it feels like to be complicit with acts that I don't agree with. I often sit down and write a poem when I'm conflicted about a social event, or something from history, or um, some facet of American policy that doesn't make sense to me. I like to think that, in that way, poems make us more generous. And you know, another term that we often use to describe the effect of literature is that it gives us greater empathy. When you read a poem, you're listening to somebody else's voice, and you are kind of bending your ear and opening your senses toward. The logic and the character of this other person, and you're trying to allow it to reach you in some way, to, sh- to show you something that you need to see.
2: In a very literal way, how do you read poems? Do you read them aloud? Do you read them quietly? Do you reread them? I mean, when you see or get a new poem or a new book of poetry, do you read it in a way that is different than I would think about how I read just a, a, a book that comes across my desk?
0: Well,
1: um, I start from the beginning, as I would in a novel, and I read forward toward the end sequentially. And if it's a good poem, I go back and I read it again, and maybe even again after that. What I'm doing on the individual level is saying, what's the information here? What does the title tell me? What questions does it raise? And then how does the body of the poem, which I kind of think of as the world of the poem, respond to those expectations or or guide me toward possible answers for the questions that that the title kind of sparked for me. I always think that a good poem teaches you how to read it. So if I might start out thinking I'm looking for sense, I'm looking for familiar syntax, I'll I'll be able to tell pretty quickly whether or not that's what the poem is offering me. And if it is, then I can move forward and allow sense to accrue in a familiar way. And if it isn't, then I get to take stock of what else seems to be clamoring for my attention. Is it sound and rhythm and music that creates a kind of like insistence that I can't help but respond to almost the way I respond to music? Or is it images that are creating a kind of emotional tone that are seeking to act upon me in some way? But I always have questions like if, if the poem is good, it's not going to answer every single thing. It's going to leave me a, with a little bit of work to do as well.
2: You talk about that feeling of being left with some of that work to do really beautifully. And it's something that I think reading it has changed a bit of my own relationship to what I'm feeling when I, I read poetry. You said in in the same speech that... The features of a poem insist upon a different value system. Rather than numbing or drowning out the difficult to describe but urgently sensed feelings that are part of being human, poetry invites us to tease them out, to draw them into languages rooted in intricate thought and strange impulse. And I guess I said this a little bit earlier, but I think a, a feeling that I have often been intimidated as somebody who's a very linear thinker. I do politics. I read, you know, narrative nonfiction. Is well, I didn't understand that? I don't understand why the spaces are there. i don't I don't know what it's trying to tell me. Why wouldn't it just say it to me? And something that you say in in some of your work is that that poetry is insisting on a different logic and is trying to pull out a different part of how we perceive the world, and that maybe, working on that part of ourselves or actually trying to rest in that struggle is valuable in a way that our day-to-day lives and certainly the way a lot of language and market transactions have moved forward uh understates. And I'd be curious to hear you talk a little bit about that.
1: Yeah. I mean that 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 realm of uncertainty and the realm of like ambiguity, we dwell in that quite a lot, <laughs> but um there's a forward or an outward facing part of our lives that is constantly urging us to pronounce to um, explain and to to manifest some sense of authority I get it this is why you're wrong this is why I'm right this is what we need to do to fix the situation that's great in many contexts but it's also true that you know there are many views that can be simultaneously right and a poem, might help us to be comfortable acknowledging that. So in the realm of art, it's great to say, is this poem, in this moment of the poem, it seems like there's a lot of joyful energy. I'm feeling bright and I'm feeling happy, but then I get into the next stanza and things get dark. So like, what is it? And sometimes the answer is, it's both. There's a moment when there's something that's bright and positive, and then there's a moment that things change. What does it feel like to live with the possibility of that change? What does it feel like to acknowledge that both are natural? I have this belief that getting comfortable with that in the context of art or in the context of feeling can make us better equipped to deal with all of the contradictions and simultaneous truths that exist in other contexts and, you know, society and community. Those are places where there's a lot of um, simultaneous truths that we're asked to consider and and maybe even validate it from one moment to, to the next.
2: On this idea of things changing and, and contradictions and simultaneous truths, I wanted to see if you'd be up for Uh, reading your poem, uh, Declaration. And we could chat a bit about that because I think it speaks quite a bit to what you're saying here.
1: Okay. I'll tell you a little bit about how this poem got written. It's an erasure of the Declaration of Independence. So I set out to read the Declaration of Independence and see what it might teach me about who America was and who it is. And so I, I was listening for another voice or another line of reasoning beneath the surface voice of that text. Um, it started out as a willful act like okay, if I if I delete these words, then my sentence veers in this other direction. But as I got further into the poem, it seemed less like I was making these really deliberate choices and more like I was hearing a logic that was gathering force. And what I heard in my rereading of the Declaration of Independence was a story about the nature of Black life in this country from the very beginning. Declaration. He has sent hither swarms of officers to harass our people. He has plundered our, ravaged our destroyed the lives of our, taking away our, abolishing our most valuable, and altering fundamentally the forms of our. In every stage of these oppressions, we have petitioned for redress in the most humble terms. Our repeated petitions have been answered only by repeated injury. We have reminded them of the circumstances of our emigration and settlement here, taken captive on the high seas to bear. And so I guess part of the experience for me of deciphering this other text within the Declaration of Independence was... I have these two perspectives. There's a kind of parallel journey that I can decipher here from the original founders of this nation and their grudge or their uh, grievance against England as the colonial power. And then this other population that has a similar trajectory that also has a kind of grievance. What can one learn from the other? And what does seeing that similarity do to our sense of possibility or to our willingness to listen? Um, I think the fact that the poem is really announcing its relationship to the original text is a way of saying, can we talk about this?
2: (laughs) I love that poem so much. And something that I particularly love about it is that In the idea of an erasure poem, it's fascinating that nevertheless, even after all the erasure, what you still have is only from that original text. And it seems to me that we're in such a fight right now in America about whether accepting other parts of our historical narrative is true means erasing ones that we're very committed to. So things like the, I've had Nicole Hannah-Jones on here about the 1619 Project. And one of the reactions I think people have to that is that if that is true, then can what I believe about America also be true? The things I was taught, the things I want to believe about the, the, the country that I'm from. And in that poem, what I think is so striking about it is that it is so clear when you do that how much more direct the Declaration of Independence is as a statement about America's sins than in some ways its founding. It's just the way you are able to pull that out is just a much better description of something America did to people than what was done by Britain to America. And yet, it doesn't make the declaration wrong or untrue. That was also a viable list of grievances against Britain. The, the fact that they can both be true at some time at the same time is, I think, something we have a lot of trouble with.
1: Yeah. I mean, that goes back to what we were talking about, right? Like we are kind of trained to think one truth must replace another. One possibility must override another. When in reality, there are these different gradations that speak to one another, indict one another, and also maybe make space for a really creative composite view of history.
2: Like a lot of writers, I used to love this Joan Didion line that I write to find out what I think. And it was actually, I had a conversation here with Gia Tolentino, and I don't remember what it was about that conversation now, but, but after it had jogged this realization that maybe I had that all wrong and that a lot of writers do, that the kind of writing I do, this persuasive argumentative writing, maybe when I write, I convince myself of what to think, that I begin with a pretty wide zone of possibilities of things I consider, and that in the nature of trying to come to one best argument, one clear conclusion, what I end up in is a process of killing off a lot of possibilities or a lot of things that might be partially true, but because I'm convincing to no one as much as I am to myself, it's very hard for me to to see that by the end. And so that feeling that I always have loved so much about writing, that it is an unearthing of what I believe or a construction of of what I believe, maybe it's actually uh, something a little bit more problematic. Maybe it's something where I have talked myself into believing something in a way that gives me a certainty about it that is not deserved.
1: Well, I I have a lot of ideas about that. One is that I always tell myself that You know, a poem gets me toward a feeling of possibility, sometimes a feeling of of truth or an answer, but I know it's only temporary. I know that there's another truth and another answer that's going to supplant that when the time comes. And so I feel okay to say that in this process and in this struggle, sometimes even with language and argument, I've arrived at a, a momentary clarity. But I also feel that, you know, language as a medium is so interesting. And the more I write, the more I feel like I'm not just saying what I think. I'm not just saying what already makes sense to me or what I'm even capable of of understanding. I'm working with this medium and it is guiding me toward other possibilities, you know. It's hard to say that and not feel like I'm sounding a little spooky or something, but I feel like language is a system that has principles that tells me something is authorized to be said because the structure by which it's said is sound. That helps me to um, winnow away the unsound thinking that I have, or the flabby, faulty ideas that I have, because they don't make the cut um, in terms of craft. It almost feels like a collaborative process, whereby the the, the words and the grammar and the music and the um, association that all sort of hovers around language is something I have recourse to in refining and um refashioning my questions and my assertions is that kind of what you're talking about
2: a bit I mean something that I'd almost draw a distinction for at least in the way I'm thinking of it though I'm curious I'm even the fact that you interpreted what I said that way is is actually I think very uh very interesting from this perspective that I was actually drawing a bit of a distinction between the sort of op writing that I often do, or argument or explanatory writing that I often do, and and the the openness and embracing of contradiction that exists in a lot of poetry. And something that I think about a lot recently is the difference between writing in ways that are open and closed. And it feels to me that the harder I push for clarity. The more i try to explain exactly what it is i'm saying and draw the distinctions and draw the lines and sharpen the boundaries the more i close down the piece whatever it is the more i end up even if it's not really how i feel internally even if i am more conflicted the piece comes out with a crispness a closedness that works for the page in a way that it doesn't work for speech whereas the kind of writing that you talk about when you talk about poetry and also that i think exists in a lot of your poetry. In the way that it can sometimes, I struggle with the fact that it isn't clear. The openness of it, it seems to me, creates a lot of space for a lot of things to exist simultaneously. That there isn't that process of having to winnow down to only one truth, winnow down to only one idea. And I think there's probably value in that. That for as, as somebody who's had a, you know, I've been a writer for almost 20 years, I'm probably a little late to exploring. <laughs> mm-hmm.
1: Well, you know, we kind of need both. I think you've definitely written more op-eds than I have, but I like the challenge of saying, okay, I have a gut feeling about this situation. And I want to say what what I think is the the central focus, what I think is the key to thinking about this in the right way. And writing makes me have to really bring specificity to this general feeling and I learn something about what I feel and I make choices about what back that up and that's satisfying and I think it contributes to an ongoing larger public conversation which we need but we also need these other forms that say okay folks we're capable of having more than one conversation at a time we're capable of thinking you know in the weeds and up on the balcony at the same time let's accept that Let's push ourselves to consider the big questions and problems that we have through different languages or different forms. I think that's I think that's healthy.
2: something that's laced through some of your writing is the idea that language and society is changing in ways that push towards, maybe these more closed forms and away from these more uh, open forms you write that the language circulating upon the surface of the 21st century is in the business of pulling us away from the interior the reflective the singular the impractical and the unsummarizable do you think that's different than it has been in the past that language is actually becoming less um for maybe lack of a better word poetic and if so why
1: Well, I tend to feel like that. And then every now and then some wise friend will say, Tracy, come on now, people have always felt like this. People have always felt like the world is getting, you know, worse, our values are are kind of being degraded, Um, you know, and even the formulation of that idea that I posit in that piece really is inspired in large part by George Orwell, who, you know, was saying in his great essay, Politics and the English Language, we're... Allowing a degenerative attitude toward language to have a degenerative effect on our thinking. And it's a vicious cycle. What I'm really thinking about as a really crucial force that's acting upon our sense of language and community is the market, you know, commerce, the thing that tells us we are consumers and our needs and appetites should be first and foremost in our own minds. I have this idea that technology, for all the many great things that it does, is also a really vigorous vehicle for the marketplace. And so much of what we're doing when we're on social media or when we're um, looking at the world through different online platforms is being marketed to. Things are being made palatable or consumable. And um, even the vocabulary of that is um, altering our vocabulary for other things like love or friendship, like education, like um, community. I think about like what it means to want to brand yourself or what it means to want to have followers and how strange and unhealthy that dynamic feels? Why should we want followers if we can have peers, if we can have people that we look up to and who respect us? Um, why is it simply about peddling something, the something being ourselves or, or image or, or opinions or whatever the product at hand seems to be?
2: There are a lot of people doing poetry on Instagram, I think in particular, but also some of you on Twitter, on social media. Do you think some of that has been uh, healthy and experimental for the forum, or do you think it ends up having this marketized dimension to it?
1: Well, I think it's both. <laughs> I, I'm sorry if all my answers are like, yes, it's both. <laughs> I, really, I actually <laughs> appreciate <laughs> that. Go,
2: let, let, we'll go with it.
1: <laughs> I love that there are a lot of voices that have emerged via platforms like uh, Instagram that um, speak to people that, that are saying, I care about the life of the planet. I care about the vocabulary of the heart. And I want to share that with you. Um, I think there's a conversation that has reached young people. It's reached people who don't necessarily have recourse to publishers or literary agents, but who have something to say and who are also modeling a kind of like observation and vulnerability that is great. But then of course there's we're in this this monetized space whenever we're online and so there's the risk that the desire to be liked and retweeted and you know like bought and booked can also be a motivator where you know it would be great if it was simply that pure wish that could always be the motivating factor. But that's not that different, I don't think, from what I do, which is to say, I write poems because they help me live better. They help me ask big questions. They help me look differently at the world and other people and myself. But I also compile those poems into books. And I publish those books. And I get excited when those books sell. So um, I don't think that it has to be a process that's divorced from the reality of, of how we consume literature.
2: One thing that maybe some of that is pushing against too in a positive way is that certainly growing up, my perception of other people's perception, but I guess this is probably true for me too, was that poetry was or had become an art form that was practiced by elites that had a formalism that was intimidating. Do you think that is the perception of it? And do you think that has historically been true or if, or is that a, a, a newer concern?
1: I feel like it's something that has arisen out of criticism, you know, literary criticism and scholarship, which you know has a specialized, even maybe a rarefied vocabulary, and you ha- you must kind of earn entry into that conversation by you know like reading and studying and and um, becoming acclimated to certain kinds of argumentation. That's great, but that's not the only way that poetry can be accessed or appreciated. I think that when people have anxiety about poems, it's because they fear that the conversation only has to live in that specialized zone. When in reality, you know, poems are like clamoring for your attention. They're saying, I want you to know so badly what this feels like that I'm going to go out of my way to guide you to the, the appropriate feelings and, and associations so that we can talk about this together. I like to do both. I like to read a poem and let it work upon me and to say, oh, right, this reminds me of when this person broke my heart or this reminds me of you know, the confusion I sometimes feel when I'm talking to the person that I love. But I also teach for a living and I go into a classroom and I say, okay, we love what happens in this poem, but what are the nuts and bolts that make that happen? And then we shift into a different vocabulary that not everybody is interested in. I feel in some ways that I made it my mission as poet laureate to say we can stay at the private, intimate, kind of one-on-one space that poems invite us into, and we can get really far in talking about what that encounter is made up of and what it feels like and what it makes us want to say and ask in response. You can go beyond that. you can go toward criticism, you can go toward a writerly approach to craft. but you don't have to be scared off from poetry altogether if you don't want to go to those other those other kinds of conversations.
2: Yezar we will be back after a short break. Canva presents unexplained appearances. One of the more profound claims you make for poetry is that poems encourage the notion that your life must be as important to you as mine is to me. And then they encourage the more difficult notion that your life must be as important to me as my own life is. How do they do that?
1: Well, the first one is, is um, I guess, the easier step to, to take, right? To say, I'm going to listen to this person talk about their family and the traditions that are alive in that family, which are different or foreign to me. And I'm going to see how much love and how much care and how much meaning resides there. And I can come away from the poem and I can I can hang on to that sense of respect and empathy. The hard thing is, what can a poem do to foster an ongoing sense of compassion that says that other person's investment in experience, whatever experience might be, has to be as important to me as my own. That's the struggle that is you know, happening in life and in policy. And if you want it to, it can happen in art. I feel like a lot of the poems in um, my most recent book are these little thought experiments that allow me to say, what would it mean to care about this other person As much as I care about myself, not just to say, oh, I know you're important to yourself, but to say, I I have to love you. I have to submit in some way to you. That's the hard part. But I feel like it's the crucial part. I feel like so many of the urgencies that we live with stem from the fact that we just don't like to do that. It's not human nature.
2: Would you read a poem from the book that has that dynamic for you?
1: Yeah, I'm gonna read you a poem. I often think of this as kind of an ugly poem. It's a poem that started when I was looking at someone who seemed to be burdened or saddled with her life. And I couldn't figure out why I couldn't stop thinking about the sight of this person writing the poem kind of forced me to say oh right it's because i'm like that too i hate to admit it but i understand exactly what that struggle feels like or i understand in my own way what that feels like so this is this is a poem that kind of helped me to take that that step toward a an ugly kind of identification charity she is like a squat old machine off-kilter but still chugging along the uphill stretch of sidewalk on Harrison Street, handbags slung crosswise and, I'm guessing, heavy. And oh, the set of her face, her brows profound tracks, her mouth cinched, lips pressed flat. Watching her bend forward to tussle with gravity, watching the birth she allows each foot as if one is not on civil terms with the other, watching her shoulders braced as if lashed by step after step after step and her eyes' determination not to shift or blink or rise. I think I am you, One day out of five. Tired, empty, hating what I carry but afraid to lay it down. Stingy, angry, doing violence to others by the sheer freight of my gloom. Halfway home, wanting to stop, to quit, but keeping going mostly out of spite maybe i i like the feeling of discomfort that writing that poem kind of urged upon me because it's it's really it feels great when a poem can show you how noble-minded you are, how generous and empathetic toward others in a way that makes makes you look refined and conscientious. But if we're willing to accept that, you know, the the rare times when when our thinking is exemplary, it's also probably important to own up to the moments when we're small-minded, begrudging, and petty. And so this poem sort of urged or even allowed me to Out myself and to say, I see this person, I judge this person, and I understand this person because, oh my God, I'm just
2: as miserable. I love that line in there. Sometimes in poems, uh, I'll, I'll read a line that just like, that's it. That's exactly how it feels. And doing violence to others by the sheer weight of my gloom. Uh, I'm just ending a book tour and it's gone great. And I've been really lucky to have a, a, a reception for the book and people show up to the events. And And I know that I should be walking on air and I'm so tired. I am so <laughs> tired. And I'm around the house, like trying to, you know, pick back up my share of the parental responsibilities. And I've had a couple days where it's like, it is all I can do to check off the box of The thing followed by the thing followed by the other thing. And I do it. And so in some weird way, if you look at the day, it's like, he did it. Nothing actually dropped. And yet, like the sheer weight of my glue, of like my exhaustion, I know is not great for the people around me. Um, It's
1: infectious, right? It's infectious. (laughs) Infectious exhaustion. (laughs) And I feel
2: bad about it and don't know what to do with it. (laughs) I mean, sleep at some point, but. Well,
1: it's like, uh There's so much that we should just continually apologize for (laughs) and then say, all right, um, I need to try and figure this out in my
2: next big project. There's something else in that poem. You know, when I had asked you to read a a poem of that nature, we were talking about poems that make you realize that other people's lives should be as important to you as yours are. And something that strikes me about that poem is that a way you do that in there is recognizing that um, her life is maybe similar to yours. But when I read, certainly the first half of it, the thing that came to mind was the feeling you sometimes get when you're confronted with how much pain other people are in. And it's not that it reminds you of you, it reminds you of how much you have and how unfair that is and how little you actually do in response. Um, You know, when you're coming off of, um, in my case, the BART station, and you see people who are just clearly have fallen about as low as you can fall as a human being. And they're there, and you just are trying to get to work. And that you can feel in this ungenerous part of yourself, this part of yourself that you try to push back, a frustration that they're there not because they shouldn't be there, but because you have to confront this question of, how am I just having a normal day and going about my day normally when there is this level of need? Like how, like I'm going to walk by this person, maybe I'll give them some money, maybe not, but I'm going to at some point walk by them. And what does it say about me that I'm going to do that?
1: Yeah. I mean, that's the choice that um, so much, like all the marketing driven, you know, stuff that bombards us is kind of helping us not to make because it says, oh, your comfort is so important. You work so hard. You have choices. You have elite status. Let's just go in that direction. But of course, that other direction pulls us, and it's probably much more vital or, or crucial direction to, to
2: dwell within or upon. I want to talk about love for a couple of minutes. You gave a commencement address that had this really beautiful passage in it. And I apologize because I'm going to read your words back to you at some length and do them and, and speak them worse than you do. But you said that you used to think of love as a visceral experience, something that envelopes you because of the way another person makes you feel. But now, you said, because I'm a parent, perhaps, I'm striving for the courage and the skill to embody another manner of love. I find myself asking what might happen if, without asking anything of you in return, I were to choose to see you, whoever you are, as another version of myself, one worthy of my acknowledgement, my concern, my devotion." And first, I want to say that that was actually the most beautiful and true description I've read of parental love since becoming a parent. It really stopped me a little bit short. And I wanted to hear you talk a little bit more about that distinction which I don't think we talk about enough between the the demands and the the gifts of romantic love or even um platonic love and parental love how they're different.
1: Well, I mean going back to your experience of the book tour and then coming home and being exhausted <laughs> but also saying, "Oh, I love these people and I need to give them what that what they deserve." And I'm going to do that and it's probably going to like kill me on some level or i'll pay for it you know the next time i have to to get up and and work that desire to put this other person's needs before yours is something i never understood until i had children i know there are people who do not have children who understand that but i think the less evolved among us and i'm one of them need the experience of offspring <laughs> to kind of like recognize this as a as a responsibility or a possibility Parenting has changed my relationship to so much. It's I, I feel like even my sense of what joy is is more complicated now because it means making sacrifices so that the person I love can feel joy, you know, working or Making a hard choice so that my kids can learn the right lesson, that's different from what joy used to feel like, which was just happiness and fun and sort of a self-motivated set of choices. Um, I feel lucky to be put in the position of having to make the hard choices because I wouldn't have made them otherwise.
2: It's such a strange feeling, though. Two things. One, you have this great line in your memoir um, where you're talking about your mother driving you home from a Halloween party that she didn't even really want to go to because she didn't love Halloween, but that you were really happy and seeing her happiness at your happiness there in this very uncomplicated way. And I remember um, before I had kids, which was most of my life <laughs> um, or a kid, I remember watching parents taking their children to, or being with parents who were taking their children to, Sports games or a friend, you know, a a friend of the kid's birthday party or, you know, one of these bouncy places or just anything. And thinking, my God, just the amount of time you were spending doing things that seem unbelievably awful to me. Like Mm -hmm. parenting just seems like drudgery, right? You're just following (laughs) this kid around to stuff that couldn't possibly be more boring. And then compared to now, where I have this sense of, if there's something I can do where I get to see my son really happy, that is the happiest I'm going to be that day. And there was just no way I could access that experience before having children. Like it just whatever chemicals are there doing that, they weren't there. But also there's a real sadness to that, right? That you can feel this for in in this biological way, you know, the, this this person you helped create. And as you say, some people can feel it for, for the world in a deeper way. But that it is so hard for me to extend that to others in the way I extend it to my son. Like it also it also is in a way a constant reminder of the ways in which you you are unevolved, the ways in which you don't seem to be as control as in control of how you love as maybe you wished you were.
1: One of the first poems that made me excited about poetry was um, Rilke's Archaic Torso of Apollo, where, you know, the speaker is gazing at this a fragment of a, of a beautiful statue and everything seems to be so full of agency and and perfection. And, you know, what, what is felt by the viewer is kind of summarized in the last two lines. You must change your life. I, I wish I were better at like quoting poems like most of the great poets I love. But um, the last line of the poem is you must change your life. There's no part of the statue that doesn't see you and exert this this message. And I feel like that's joy in a way, something that takes the time to startle you out of satisfaction with who and what you are and to say there's something more that you ought to be submissive to or beholden to, accountable to. Having kids kind of activated that awareness in another way for me, like, oh, right. I have to feel like this. I have to find ways of feeling like this, even when it's not my kids that I'm looking at. I've got to change.
2: I so love that line, something that startles you out of satisfaction with who and what you are. Um, there's a there's a lot to that. One thing I was thinking about as I was reading um, your piece on this and, and had read some of your other pieces was... Something in the distinction, maybe, between romantic love, as we think about it now, and parental love, as as, as it can sometimes be experienced. It, it left me thinking whether there's not something of the market in that difference, um, that since the advent of modern love marriages, there is a, an, an aspect of the transactional. I chose you because of what you do for me and how you make me feel. And I will unchoose you if that changes. And I want to be very clear here that I'm not <laughs> advocating for the rollback of love marriages or no fault divorce <laughs> or anything else. But just in the sense of of sitting in some of the questions and the contradictions, I wonder if you think there's something of the market logic and what can make romantic love sometimes a bit smaller and more contingent.
1: Oh, I think there's a bit of the market in everything, right? There's a way that we can we can keep tabs on what our friends do. What, well, I did this for you. I did this on your birthday and you didn't do this on my birthday. We have a problem. It's easy to get into that sort of like tit for tat kind of mentality. We're encouraged by the market and perhaps by other forces as well. I don't think that's the only version of romantic love though, right? Like in some ways... The willingness to give without receiving anything immediately in return or maybe even ever in return is also part of how we love the people that we truly love, right? Giving because there's a need and because we know how to meet that need is, I hope it's a choice that drives part of what it means to be in love with someone.
2: Oh, I, I absolutely think that it is. It's it's more that um, I certainly think in the way we frame a lot of kinds of love in society, and you'll often hear this argument made by people defending other forms of marriage, um, which have their problems. Uh, but but that there is something in the way that people now exist in a constant space of choice. Um, it, it's a weird thing to recognize that the space of how people date now is just a completely different one than I existed in. So I met my partner before the age of Tinder, Hinge, Bumble, like all of it. And so what people are doing now is totally different than anything I ever did. And Sometimes it seems to me, from like my perspective, where I had um, you know no game at all, and you know I found like the, it was very hard to talk to people at bars and so on. That this idea of just total abundance—that you can just like log onto an app and all of a sudden there's a million choices—there's a way in which it looks like a wonderland, and then nobody I know who is on those apps is actually happy. That it is totally exhausting, and that they one of the feelings they describe is not just a feeling of too much, but the feeling of it creates a sense in you that there's always another option that people are always looking that you and also the people you with are always looking over their shoulder always in comparison always in this are you not just better than the person i was out with on tuesday but every person i could ever swipe on this app and it's this way in which what seems like it might be great i think actually creates a, a deeper to go back to that term market logic in in the system where it's like well i've made a more efficient market where it's easier to match and you have so many more potential matches but that makes it hard sometimes to just sit and rest in you know well I've you know I've made a choice and um, that choice is no longer about the market it's about just being cleaved to a person and and being there for them in the ways they need a little bit irrespective of what in that moment they're able to do for me
1: so we started this conversation by talking about oh multiple possibilities are um, important and it's important to keep them open and it's important to acknowledge that one thing being good doesn't negate another thing from being good that's kind of the perspective of Tinder, (laughs) maybe. But what if that unwillingness to choose one thing is keeping us from like getting serious about solving some of the real problems that we face, like climate change or like immigration, is working in the mode of constant availability, keeping us from drilling down on some things that really require certainty and commitment. I don't know, I'm I'm just thinking, it's scary to imagine that we're using the wrong tools in the co- a context that, that's kind of crucial.
2: Well, this is something that I felt I connected to in some of your work in writing, this idea that one of the values of poetry is it develops a part of ourselves that is maybe underdeveloped right now, this interiority, this comfort with things that are hard to express or contradictory to express. And something that I think about the modern world, um, you know, in the the Elizabeth Warren way, there's a party means a capitalist to my bones. But that I think that we have set up a society that is overdeveloping our transactional natures, which have real values and I do think create innovations and um, ways in which people live better and have done a lot of good in, the, in their ways and underdevelop other parts of it. And, and some of the ones that you were just saying there, I mean, for instance, uh, a sense and an ethic of living in some level of harmony with nature, I think is a big one where nature just becomes something to be exploited as opposed to something that we are part of and live with and operate in at times even some submission to, that it's not just there for our taking, animals being the same way. And that a problem of the society we live in is not that the things that it develops are bad, but they are bad if they are not in tension with other parts of ourself, that you need a balance. And that maybe, and I'm not myself a religious person, but maybe the decline of a lot of forms of organized religion and the decline of a lot of social structures around family and being rooted in a particular place, people move from where they grew up and away from their families much more often. You talk about this very beautifully in your book. That it is just meant that there is this huge architecture building out the market part of ourselves, and we've gotten real good at that, and that it's not so much that that part is bad, just that it shouldn't be out there quite as alone as it is
1: mm-hmm. I hear that. So then a practice like reading a poem doesn't feel frivolous <laughs> right because it's it's helping us to build out those other those other capacities. It's reminding us that a humility. And attention to something fragile is crucial to whatever we seek to do, especially if it's something we seek to do, you know, in concert with others.
2: The Ezra Show will return after a quick message from our sponsors.
3: Support for the gray area comes from Greenlight. If you're a parent of teenagers, you might be starting conversations about money management and financial literacy. So often, the best way to learn is to do. But when it comes to money, there can be real consequences to learning the hard way. That's where Greenlight comes in. Greenlight is a debit card and money app made for families. Parents can send money to their kids and keep an eye on their spending and saving. And kids and teens can build money confidence and lifelong financial skills. My kid is way too young to talk money with, thank God. But I have a colleague here at Vox that uses Greenlight with his boys, and he loves it. If you want to help your kids learn about money, consider Greenlight. It's a convenient way for parents to raise financially smart kids and for families to navigate this stuff together. Sign up for Greenlight today and get your first month free at greenlight.com slash gray area. That's greenlight.com slash gray area to try Greenlight for free. Greenlight.com slash gray area.
0: Vacations can be tricky. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.
2: You have a term that you use, compassionate civic regard. What is that? What does that mean?
1: (laughs) Well, I, I was wondering at one point, what it would feel like if love was a vocabulary that existed in like our political consciousness. like If we could say, I want to love my neighbor, and if I love my neighbor, then these are the things that I want to make sure my neighbor has access to. It's different from what we do say, which is, I will tolerate my neighbor talked a little bit about that word and how tolerance is just like, it's on the brink of disgust. It's like the the last thing we can comfortably accept before something within us makes us sick, which doesn't quite go the distance that love does. So I I decided that it would be hard to shift our shared vocabulary so quickly, but maybe compassion is a synonym that we can get our heads around and say, all right, I'm going to regard this other person and their experience through the lens of compassion, which means I want to make sure they have these things, or I want to make sure that I don't inflict a kind of discomfort or anxiety or fear or pain upon them. It seems like one small step that that might be realistically taken by groups of people who are wary of what love might uh,
2: ask of them. You know, this idea, this distinction between having tolerance as our civic ideal and love as our civic ideal, it's something I first heard from your senator, Cory Booker. Um, he talked about it on the show a couple of years ago, and it was, a, it was a very interesting riff, I thought. And I'm curious if he if he got that from you or if you got if you've had conversations with him about that,
1: uh, I've never had conversations with him about it. But I feel like it's a question that's in the zeitgeist, you know, because we live with so much that is antithetical to that. And it doesn't seem to be getting us where we want or need to be. I hope we're speaking to each other in some way.
2: one thing that I think afflicted his campaign a bit, not to ask you to play political consultant, but is that, some of these ideas, they ask so much that they can become very hard to communicate what it is you're asking. He was on the show not long ago, actually just a couple of days before he dropped out. And something we were talking about was there was a very deep idealism in his campaign that I think he and I think other people who try to run truly idealistic campaigns on that civic level, not just on the policy level, um, have trouble sometimes saying what they mean. It's very, it's much easier for me to explain to you what my tax cut is going to be or that I'm going to tax these people to give you this thing than it is to say, I'm running in part, I want to build a politics where we treat each other in this different way. And in particular, I think it's hard because politics creates a sense of conflict, can create a sense of zero-sumness, can create a sense of competition. So for instance, in the in the question of love, in imagining, as you put it in, in one place, that your needs must be as important to you as mine are, and that I can only truly honor and protect myself by honoring and protecting you. What does that mean when you're dealing with somebody whose needs are or seem to them to be antithetical to your needs, whose needs and wants and political project is a threat to you or to people you love or to the values you hold dear? How do, What does love ask of you in that in that dynamic?
1: Hmm. I guess it asks a kind of patience for you and a, and a different gaze. First and foremost, it says we have to step back from this point where it's it's a me or you question. And there's probably some sort of footing that we can find where those aren't the stakes, where you feeling secure isn't about me feeling completely vulnerable we just have to back up to the place where we can recognize that the stakes are more balanced i don't know exactly if this speaks directly to this question but i just um in one of my poetry workshops my students watched anna Devere smith's most recent play notes from the field And, you know, her project is this really amazing kind of documentary project where she has interviewed by now thousands of people about their experiences of America or of certain moments in, you know, recent history where uprising or riots have happened. This most recent work is thinking about what is commonly referred to as the school to prison pipeline. So she's interviewed hundreds of people uh, about their experience of some aspect of that. And the concluding monologue in that work is by uh, Representative John Lewis. And in it, he talks about moments where he was beaten by white supremacists. And on two occasions, he was later contacted by those very same people because they wanted to apologize to him. And they wanted to ask his forgiveness. And they wanted to learn to see him as their brother. Um, it's a really moving moment um, even as it's being reenacted by you know, an actor. I think in part it's moving because it's frightening to imagine that one could be asked to not only forgive but to begin to love an enemy to understand that someone might be capable of regret and growth and um, certain kind of humility. Somehow, that seems to me like this really amazing example of what you're asking. How do we get to a place where what you represent and what I represent can claim one another? Maybe it's hard to do that because it's so scary. It's really scary to say you've hurt me, but. I'm going to make space for you here at the same table where I sit, and we're going to share something here. So much of what we've learned to do through our political vocabulary is about not doing that, about righting wrongs by punishing someone. And I'm not saying that that's not appropriate in many contexts, but that next step, which is to say, okay, here we are. Neither one of us is more important than the other how do we deal with that i feel like that's the very scary space that we need to develop a vocabulary for because in many ways that's where we are in many ways our like hyper polarized politics has brought us to this space and if we want to get past the polarization we're going to have to deal with whatever the the new vocabulary is that can help us to say okay here we are And and we're going to have to do something
2: together. Would you tell me a bit about and and read the poem, Unrest in Baton Rouge?
1: Sure. I was asked to look at the photo that I think many people will remember um, that came out of a Black Lives Matter March in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. And it's an image of a young black woman who is wearing a very gauzy sundress. She's completely unthreatening is standing facing a row of police officers who were decked out in riot gear. And I think that image, uh, which was taken by a photojournalist named Jonathan Bachman, went viral. And it seemed to epitomize so much of what we were talking about when we talked about unarmed black citizens and, and police brutality and um, you know what is the regard in which we're willing to hold one another. So I I said, okay, I want to write a poem about this image because I want to think about it in a new way. I want to think about what the imbalance that I recognize, what that points to. And what I realized was that the transaction at stake in that image is one of not just power, but love. If I'm going to love you, that love is going to exact something of me. It's going to require something of me. It's going to make me vulnerable to you in some way. And I think that's scary. <laughs> so this is Unrest in Baton Rouge. Our bodies run with ink-dark blood. Blood pools in the pavement's seams. Is it strange to say love is a language Few practice, but all, or near all, speak. Even the men in black armor, the ones jangling handcuffs and keys, what else are they so buffered against if not love's blade sizing up the heart's familiar meat? We watch and grieve. We sleep, stir, eat, love, the heart sliced open, gutted, clean, love, naked almost in the everlasting street, skirt lifted by a different kind of breeze.
2: Can you tell me about that first turn you make in the poem where you say, after this very evocative and and bloody opening, that, is it strange to say? Was that you sort of feeling it was strange to to make this turn, to, to look at this and look at what was happening and try to imagine love at the heart of it?
1: I guess so. But it was also looking at that image and looking at the grace and the beauty of the woman. Her name is Aisha Evans the sense of courage with which she just stands there knowing all the things that are possible when she's confronted by people who are decked out to defend themselves against something i felt love in her posture i felt love in in the choice she was making what was strange to me was the idea oh i see it and i know i know it's a vocabulary that i recognize And I know they recognize it. They speak this language too, but we don't always resort to it. So the poem is making the strange or counterintuitive choice to say, I want this vocabulary in this image. I want it in this poem. I want to listen to it and see what it can teach me to see that I otherwise would miss.
2: You had said in your Wellesley address that you find yourself thinking a lot these days about whether love is a principle compatible with our current version of civic selfhood or nationhood, and I wondered what you meant by that. I'm thinking about that poem too, what the word "compatible" there was interesting to me. Why why wouldn't love be compatible with our version mm. of civic selfhood?
1: Well, civic selfhood <laughs> is contingent upon a an authoritative sense of self, and Sometimes the authority that we use to validate who we are and what we stand for is inflexible and it is blind to the terms that other people use to do the very same thing. You know, that's how we've fallen into these different camps that, you know, sometimes can't accept that we're actually speaking the same language in that same commencement address. I, I give this anecdote that felt so meaningful to me of of walking my dog in a you know neighborhood park and my dog seeing this other big dog, and my dog is like not so great with other dogs. And somehow she just wrangled free of the leash and she was running, charging this other dog. And that dog, of course, was like so well-behaved and it just sat there. And the owner stood there watching my dog go crazy. And my reaction was, this is making me look terrible. And I'm going to have to go up to this person who's going to call me out on my bad dog owner behavior. And I was ready to be scolded and ready to feel defensive. And I got Finally, to the dog, then I saw the person and I I was beginning to say, I'm sorry. And the person just smiled and said, It's okay. And I just, it meant so much to me to be regarded not as a problem and not as a failure and not as like this wrong headed entity that I just kind of broke down in tears. (laughs) I walked home with my dog, just weeping this kind of grateful, um, these grateful tears. And somehow that that felt like a metaphor of civic life. Like, oh, most settings are this dog park where you are going to have to take it from somebody else and you're going to have to feel wrestled and throttled and belittled and and scolded and corrected. And so we live braced for that. But then there's this other opportunity that sometimes we're afforded to just be human and be treated as though we're worthy of forgiveness and Gentleness. Somehow, that spoke to me about where we, as a nation, we as like as public selves, have to remember to try and get to.
2: This may be a weird reaction to this, but it's what came up for me while you were saying that. I have a kind of constant internal monologue, and it's a couple of years ago that I noticed that oftentimes the thing playing in my head was what my defensive reaction was going to be if somebody struck at me for something that I was feeling a little bit bad about doing or having done right that I had not called somebody I loved and you know I would find myself in my head coming up with this like what would I say if and it this had always been going on in my head and it was like actually this bolt of lightning moment for me that oh it's always something I feel a little bit bad about um, not necessarily something anybody else is going to be angry at me about, but just something where I have a little, like a little kernel of guilt or fear or defensiveness.
1: Yeah. So think about what that means, because how can any of us not have that, right? We're kind of encouraged to live in this me first mode and, you know, like com- the commerce of social life is I give you this, but you're going to give me that. And um, we all live with the guilt because we know that's not quite right that's not enough and and then we act based on trying to sort of squirm away from that feeling Um, or we operate anticipating the defense or the skepticism or the criticism of that other person who's watching us i find myself doing that in situations and um bringing a sense of conflict into the space where it doesn't necessarily exist. And I only learn that it's not there because I hold my tongue for a minute. And I say, I'm just going to, instead of addressing what I feel like is probably happening, I'm going to wait and see what announces itself. And oftentimes what announces itself is completely benign or kind, (laughs) as opposed to combative or judgmental.
2: Yeah, it's always striking to me how much in in my own head, I don't really, in my own life, I'm not an escalating person exactly, but I always like have this just defensive thing ready. Because I don't know that 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 fear of being criticized is very deep in people, and it doesn't. And so, I guess the thing I'm I'm saying on this is that it it is striking to me how much when I'm in that moment and I have two dogs who are quite poorly behaved, <laughs> mm-hmm. and so I'm very sympathetic to that feeling you had um, when I'm in that moment. How much uh, a fearing judgment, how churlish the part of me that brings out is how much that does not put me at my best. It doesn't even put me at my best in a sense of being, there's a good version of me that's apologetic, but it's not that version that comes out first. The version that comes out first is self-protective and not self-protective in an enlightened way, but self-protective in a narrow way. And that politics is constantly like this for almost everybody involved in it. Everybody's always braced for the blow. Everybody's yeah. always feeling under criticism we, and the platforms really yeah. encourage that and they encourage it backwards, too. Right. I mean, you know, a good, a good dunk on a political enemy on Twitter. You get 50,000. And that's but you recognize that you're going to not you're not going to bring out the best part of the person you're arguing with. And I find this actually a little bit paralyzing. I used to be much more comfortable with the aggressive, you're wrong on the internet form of arguing before I began to just begin to recognize more deeply that whether or not I was right, I wasn't changing the people I was arguing with because I was making them feel defensive. And it's tough. I mean, politics is a place where I think you often do need to have these fights, but having a, the deeper your appreciation gets it that is not going to be a good version of the person you're fighting with the harder it becomes to operate
1: you're not fighting your actual opponent at that mode you're fighting all the defensive padding and the and the armor that you know they adopt because they know what the waters of twitter are like this is kind of where we get back to that that sense of the vicious cycle that that orwell talks about we we assume these things, we act upon their, you know, reality, and then we deepen the conflict. When I was traveling as Poet Laureate, I went into a lot of communities where I know from electoral maps that the politics are different from my own, but because we weren't talking about policy, I feel like we got into conversations about life that were not characterized by defensive or offensiveness we you know could read a poem about immigration a poem about the experience of someone who is a a stranger and who feels vulnerable because people don't see them or don't understand them and we could talk about what that feels like and we could talk about what it feels like in different contexts like in a small town or in a city or in a family or in um, moving from one, one home to another, and suddenly we're talking about all of the very same factors, but we're talking about it and not shouting about it. And we're listening to one another and not seeking to undermine the perspectives of one another. I feel like choosing to have those important conversations in platforms that aren't framed by that you know awful behavior platforms that give us recourse to this other more reasonable and and more open approach is really crucial. We can't only be talking about the future of this nation on the internet because we will <laughs> we will be talking as our worst selves.
2: I both think that's true and it is such a depressing Thing to, to to believe. I've heard you asked about your relationship to outrage in a in an interview you did with Krista Tippett on on Being, um, and it, this was an audience question. But I thought your response was so interesting um, because outrage feels to me like it is the dominant political emotion of our age. And what you said was that outrage is activating and it leads you to the page. And then you said, but it has to sit somewhere else while you're actually writing. Can you? Tell me about that, about why it has to sit somewhere else and how you even get it to sit somewhere else.
1: Yeah, well, this is where that the idea of language as a medium or as like a companion in thought is really helpful because my hot-headed self isn't very smart, <laughs> um, doesn't have the ability to observe things closely enough to describe them nimbly enough and to be honest. And so that person might say, you need to write a poem about this. That person knows that it's a different Tracy that's going to do the work and that's going to be um accountable to language of a poetic nature. Um, and that isn't just pretty language, but language that's courageous and language that is willing to look at the many different sides of a single perspective or a single thing. And that's, I mean, it's not just writing about politics. I, I have poems about grief that, begin from the perspective of, I love this person and he's gone and I want to honor him. But that move toward a more frank and unguarded place whereby I'm able to say, I love this person and I miss him, but there was a time when I really wanted to get out from under his thumb and that's part of who I am. And so it's part of what my grief is built of.
2: That's a such a that's a beautiful I think complicated space for a lot of people who grieve. What do you say to those? And I think that this tends to get lobbed in the political context, but it's actually applicable to something like that question of of grief that people feel towards um I don't want to uh, assume what yours is, but people feel towards people in their life who have maybe mistreated them but they also loved. There's a lot of argumentation right now that too much time is spent trying to understand the impulses of those in power of those on the other side, and that that kind of empathy and civility just serves the status quo, that it ends up being a tool of the powerful. How do you respond to that?
1: Well, I would say that I don't think that's empathy. I think that's strategizing. I think that's kind of like saying, if this is what I think that person wants this is what i will do in order to circumvent that this is what that person's past behavior tells me they're prone to and since that's a problem for me i'm going to have to adjust my behavior so i can get to this other outcome that's not empathy it's kind of like gaming the system of other people i think empathy's sort of willing to you know to be truly empathetic You have to sort of like empty your hands of the thing that you're clinging tightly to. You have to be willing to say, all right, I know what my goals are. I know what my appetites look like, but it's not about me right now. I'm going to turn my full attention to the needs and wishes of this other entity and i'm going to take it seriously for a little while i'm going to have a um a neutral gaze and learn from that i don't think that's what we are we're doing politically
2: is there a poem you'd want to read that has a quality of empathy of emptying your hands
1: i guess so um this is a poem called refuge and it came out of a conference i attended at princeton where i teach on forced migration And in it, you know, in addition to hearing from, you know, like experts, we heard from people who have moved from one place to another because of political circumstances or because of unavoidable need or unavoidable conflict. And um, they told the story of what they lost in making that passage to safety and of um, where they find themselves. And on that same day, I heard from a lot of people who were supposed to be, like, serving that population. And what they had to say was, I learned so much from these people. They gave me so much. They gave me more than what I gave to them. And that was so interesting to me. Refuge. Until I can understand why you fled why you are willing to bleed, why you deserve what I must be willing to seed. Let me imagine you are my mother in Montgomery, Alabama, walking to campus rather than riding the bus. I know what they call you, what they try to convince you you lack. I know your tired ankles, the sudden thunder of your laugh. Until I want to give you what I myself deserve, let me love you by loving her. Your sister in a camp in Turkey, 16, deserving of everything. Let her be my daughter, who has curled her neat hands into fists, insisting nothing is fair and I have never loved her. Naomi, lips set in a scowl, young heart ransacking its cell. Let me lend her passion to your sister and love her for her living rage, her need for more and now and all. Let me leap from sleep if her voice sounds out, afraid from down the hall. I've seen men like your father walking up Harrison Street now that the days are getting longer. Let me love them as I love my own father, whom I phoned once from a valley in my life to say what I feared I'd never adequately said, voice choked, stalled, hearing the silence spread around us like weather. What would it cost me to say it now to a stranger's father walking home to our separate lives together?
2: I think that's a good place to end. Um, So one, I want to say thank you. This was a really um, lovely conversation to get to have. And, And two, to ask you the question we always use to end the show, which is what are three books that have mattered to you that you would recommend to the audience?
1: I love that question, and thanks for having me. Um, well, I just mentioned Anna Devere Smith's Notes from the Field, um, and there's a book form of that, this, this, I guess the script or the script for that play, which is so beautiful because it brings you into the voice and mannerism of so many different people, and I feel it's so instructive, no matter what you're seeking to do, to, to put yourself in that position I also recently just taught Lucille Clifton's Quilting um, to my students, and that's one of her great books of poetry. I think it was published in the early 90s, but she's thinking about Black life in this country. She's thinking about different contexts in which family and community um, exist and how the reality of intimacy is something that we need to acknowledge and celebrate in the face of sometimes those larger, starker, unfeeling public forces that also act upon us. It's a book that also makes a really beautiful argument for the Black vernacular as a site of extreme nuance and feeling and joy and, and complexity. And um, there's a, a new book that I think is quite beautiful by a poet named Sue Huang Called Bodega, and I think it's a beautiful book because it gives voice to the experience of you know coming from an immigrant family. Um, it also celebrates the beautiful like pluralism of this country, all the many voices and languages and traditions and um, possibilities that that make this country vibrant and beautiful, and that we should um, honor. I think she honors those things really beautifully in
2: in her book. Tracy Smith, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you to Tracy Smith for being here. That was really wonderful. Um, a couple quick things before I go here. One is I just finished the, the biggest leg of my book tour, and I want to thank all of you who have come out. It was incredibly and continues to be incredibly meaningful to see and meet people who actually listen to this podcast. It makes the whole thing feel much more tangible and real. And... I've been really moved by what some of you have told me and the role it plays in your life. So thank you for that. And thank you for sharing it with me. Um, there are a couple more tour stops coming. You can go to wirepolarized.com uh, to check that out, um, including stops in Chicago, in Nashville, in Greenville, in Austin, and so on. So go to wirepolarized to check that out. Thank you to Tracy K. Smith for being here. That was wonderful. I really do hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. Thank you to Topher Ruth for engineering, to Roger Karma for researching, to Jeffrey Geld for producing